everybody. It's me, Esther Derby. I'm here with Victor Sesson for our newest episode of Tea and the Law of Raspberry Jam. Episode 11. 11. That's a big deal. Yeah, it is. And today's episode is about observing systems. And I remember when I started learning about systems, and that was with you in PSL. Yep. And I think this is something that's super duper important. And it makes a huge difference in the way I approach all of the interactions I have with the people I work with. So can I tell a little story, my little analogy about observation? Yes, please. So in the U.S., we have this children's party game called Pin the Tail on the Donkey. And in this game, there's a poster of a very sad-looking donkey whose tail is missing. And all of the children at the party are given a replacement tail and a pushpin. And their job is to replace the tail on the donkey. That's why it's called Pin the Tail on the Donkey. But before any of the children can try this, the party mother blindfolds the kid and spins them around so that they're all dizzy and they're kind of stumbling around and everybody's laughing at them and they're trying desperately to pin the tail on the donkey, but they get it on his head or his ear or his hoof or the lampshade. And if you don't observe what is going on in the client systems you work with, you're going to be like that poor dizzy kid just kind of stumbling around sticking a pin in anywhere. So observation is a way to develop a hypothesis about what would be helpful based on what you have seen and heard. So not just pulling something out from rote, because I always do this, but based on some understanding of the system. For me, learning how to observe systems made a huge difference. Sometimes I am that kid who's dizzy, but I'm less dizzy and I get increasingly less dizzy. And I remember that in your class, how you have that simulation where you look for a couple of observers. And that was really helpful to me. It made a huge shift in how I work with teams and organizations. And I noticed that many people who are in the role of being a coach, they make the same mistakes I do and that I did. So I think there's a huge opportunity here for growing as a coach to become better at observing systems. So that's why I'm super excited about today's episode as well. Yeah, me too. Let's start with the takeaways directly. Yeah. So when you're observing teams, you need an agreement with the team about what you're going to do with the observations. That's the first takeaway. Yeah, and I think that in the context of coming in as a coach, it's really important to have that agreement with the team. And then you need to decide what you're going to observe and also be willing to shift, right, if you notice something interesting going on. We'll talk more about that. And finally, takeaway three is learning how to separate observation from meaning, significance, and response. Being aware of your internal interpretation system. Absolutely. So what is observation? Isn't it just looking around? That's certainly a part of it, yes, but it's also knowing how to look and knowing what to look at. It's not always even looking. Sometimes it's smelling, hearing, sensing, connecting different things together. Yeah, you can learn a lot from tone of voice. You can learn a lot from, you know, if you come in and it always smells like burnt coffee and stale pizza, that gives you something to look into more, you know. So you use all your senses. Yeah, but where you focus your senses is what matters, I think. So, Victor, when you meet a new team, what do you typically observe? What's your starting point? So it depends on the way I'm brought in. If I'm brought in for one specific meeting and what that meeting is, 
I come in with some sort of prejudice. If they're asking me to, can you come and observe us in a planning meeting? I may look at what are they talking about? Are they actually talking about planning or are they talking about architecture or shifting topics or doing a stand-up or talking about social things? And how often do they change topics? But if I'm being brought into a new team, the first thing I would observe is probably how they welcome me in. That's super interesting. So can you say more about that? So there is a certain element of safety in this. Do they ask me questions like, who are you? And we'd like to learn more about your background and why you're here. Or we're so happy that you're here because we have these things and we heard that you were going to come in and support us with these things. Mm -hmm. Do they talk about themselves? And if they do, does everyone talk about themselves? Or is it the, you know, some sort of lead figure that is the only one introducing him or herself? So like, how am I invited into the system? if at all. And this goes back to the entering groups, which we've talked about before. And sometimes you find out that the people haven't heard of you. You know, they don't know why you're there. Yeah. And I try to handle that in the contracting phase, but I've met a lot of people that that's happened to them. I try to handle it too. I mean, if I'm brought into an organization, I might help out with the organization. And then, you know, can you also help out with these, this or that team? So even if I'm brought in for a specific thing, at certain times I am asked to help out with teams. And more often than not, the team are not aware of why I'm there. And if they are not aware of why I'm there, that is really valuable information that I need to act on before I do anything else. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm curious about how do they invite me into the team. Yeah. Most often my interpretation is that they're nervous about why I'm there. Mm -hmm. So that goes back to the opportunity to create an agreement with the team about what you're going to observe, right? What about you? What's one or a couple of things that you typically observe with teams? Well, assuming that there's already some sort of agreement in place that they, you know, they want me to be there or they're willing for me to be there, I very often start by looking at the elements that support teamwork and collaboration. Mm. So I look to see if they're really a team. You know, is the membership relatively stable or are they changing every few weeks or do they, you know, not know who's going to be showing up at any given time or are they all assigned to 14 other projects? So are they really a team? I look at things like what is their goal? You know, do they have one? Do they have a shared understanding of it or do people have different understandings of what they're working on? Is it something that would actually be interesting to people that they care about? Because if those two things aren't present, it's not likely that you're going to have a team that functions very well. So I start there. That's really interesting. So these are environmental variables that you're looking at. Yeah. So I think I go back and forth between looking at the environment and looking at the team dynamics, because the dynamics may indicate that there's something in the environment that needs attention. Like if I see people arguing a lot about what they should be working on, that may be a clue that they don't have a clear goal that they're working towards that everybody understands. So very often that irrelevant conflict is related to not having something that they care about working on. One thing you talk a lot about is if the environment is not conducive to coaching, there's little point in coaching teams. And maybe I've taken that too much to heart, but I do not coach teams when the environment is not conducive to coaching. 
And so when I enter a team, I often look at team dynamics. Mm. I try to assess, understand how they work with validation, agreements, interactions, safety and feedback, like you mentioned as well. But I think I emphasize more on that point than on the environment when I'm working with teams. Mm -hmm. Well, I look at the environment because that's often the first thing to shore up. You know, if a team isn't working well or a team, in air quotes, isn't working well together. It may very well be because they aren't really set up as a team. And sometimes by bringing that into visibility, people can change those environmental conditions. They can begin to ask questions and start articulating a goal. Or they can look at the fact that right now we're functioning as a group. What would be necessary for us to function as a team? And sometimes the team can do something about that, and sometimes it's more of a management issue. But I think that's a place to lay some groundwork so that other types of coaching will have a better chance of succeeding. And we thought we'd go through a bunch of different things you can observe or pay attention to, both in the team dynamics as well as the environment. Maybe there's something here that inspires you to look at your teams in a new way or a new team in a, in a new way. But here are some things that we pay attention to in no particular order. Yeah, and I would say it's important to choose some things, maybe not just one thing, because if you don't make a conscious decision, you may end up observing nothing, right? Because there's an infinite number of things you can observe. So I think it's useful to have some idea going in related to things that are generally important to teams. Yeah, so I want to tell a story before we go into that list, though. After PSL, when I got back, I had permission from my team to observe them. And I use daily stand-ups as a place to practice observations. And we had daily stand-ups that were quite short. They would range between 5 and 10 minutes. And I would write pages upon pages with notes, with timestamps, because I was observing everything. Not only is it very hard to find the important pieces when you're observing everything, you also get really exhausted by observing everything. What I've started doing is when I go in, if there is that agreement, and once I'm welcomed in, I may take a few sessions with the team where I don't observe anything particular until my curiosity is awoken, and then I will shift and focus on something particular. Because mm -hmm. if you're observing everything, you're basically not observing, I think. Yeah, I would also insert and assert that the things that I tend to take as my initial cut at observation are actually based on research. So the stuff about the team environment comes out of J. Richard Hackman's research about teams, and the stuff about team dynamics comes out of human relations research and Amy Edmondson's research on psychological safety. We aren't just pulling these things out of the air. Yeah. These are things that are generally relevant to teams. And we have some pieces from Susan Whelan's IMGD as well under Team Dynamics, mm -hmm. which is also based on research. And it doesn't have to be based on research. It's just a really good place to start if you're getting started with this. This is a great place to start. But so if we're looking at Team Dynamics and agreement, what can you look at then? Well, I might look at what happens when team members disagree. I might look at, you know, do agreements happen in the room and then they erode? They just dissipate once people leave a particular meeting? Do people express disagreement during the conversation or do they have a little side conversation with somebody later saying, well, everybody was talking about this, but I disagree? What else would you look at about agreements? One thing that's really interesting to look at is how do they make decisions? 
How do they anchor decisions? Because that says a lot. Another thing I look at a lot is interactions. And I look at active and inactive participation. What does it look like in this team? I've worked with companies that do a lot of their meetings in chat lines. You'll go into a meeting room and it looks like everyone's quiet and just working on their computer. But in fact, they're having rich conversations in a chat app. So what does active participation look like in this team? Who asks questions? Is there an order that there's always this first person and then the second person? Does everyone ask questions? Subgroups is also something that I find pretty interesting to look at. What subgroups are formed? What are they based on? How long do they live? How are the subgroups treated by the team? How does the subgroups treat the team? Let's look at safety. What are some things you look at for safety? Well, maybe we should say first what safety is. So we're talking about psychological safety, which is a concept that I became familiar with first through Jerry Weinberg and then through the work of Amy Edmondson. And it has to do with people feeling safe to bring up disagreements and feeling like they're not going to be punished for mistakes, that people can bring up problems and they'll be dealt with. So I look for those sorts of things. Are people able to bring up problems? What happens when they bring up problems? What happens when people make mistakes? Are they treated as sort of a matter-of-fact thing that, oh, this happened, and now let's figure out what led to it and how we can prevent it or learn from it? Are they used as an opportunity to blame? Are they punished? Are they suppressed? Are they hidden? What would you add about safety? One thing you taught me was, how safe do I feel in this group? I've been a part of many management teams where I have an opinion or an observation, but I don't feel comfortable enough to share it. And that is really irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So you as a coach, how safe do you feel to bring up disagreements or observations? And what happens when you do that? Related to safety, we have validation. One thing you can pay attention to is how does the team validate each other's thoughts, feelings, concerns, and ideas? If someone brings up and says, I feel I'm tired and I, I'm not ready to do a two-hour long meeting, how does the team react to that? What do they say? Or if someone comes with a new idea at the end, after a decision has been made, how does the team react to that? And how does the person who came up with the idea react back onto those reactions? So validation. What about feedback? Or did you want to add something on that? No, not at this moment. But I think feedback in some ways is related because it has to do with how people respect each other. So one aspect of feedback has to do with if one person on a team has an issue with someone else on their team, do they bring it up directly with them or do they triangulate it? Hmm. Or do they all talk about that person behind their back or do they go to the manager? So how do they deal with those bits of friction that are inevitable? How do they deal with that? And that, I think, in some ways is very closely related to what you were talking about. And the other has to do with their awareness of group process and how they work together and how they handle that. So if they, for example, have some working agreements and they start drifting from consciousness and everybody starts doing their own thing, how do they handle that? Do they bring it up? If one person consistently is violating an agreement, how do they handle that? And one by one, observing these things in one meeting may not say a lot. But if you pay attention to one of these points for a couple of meetings, and then you pay attention to another point for a couple of meetings and another point, eventually you can start formulating a hypothesis. So I think it's important also to be aware of the observations you're making. How much data do you need to be able to form a hypothesis? Can you establish that in just a five-minute meeting, or do you need several data points to be able to? 
I think it's a it depends question because there are some things that are so remarkable that they are worthy of some sort of attention if seen once. And there's other things that, you know, I mean, there are all sorts of little flukes and interactions that if you notice that, you know, a male person speaks before a female person and that happens two or three times, I might not be concerned about it. If I saw that pattern continuing where all the male people spoke before the female people over a period of time, I would respond differently. Yeah. But following the same example, if a female coworker is consistently interrupted by one and the same male coworker in the same meeting, that's something that you may not want to wait with. Yep, exactly. So there's some judgment involved. Yeah. But the judgment has to come after the data. Yep. So that's super important. And that was one of the points we wanted to talk about in this episode. But we're going to get back to that later. I want to add one thing about interactions that I look at before we move on to environment, which is the temporal aspect. I've noticed that in every meeting, it doesn't matter if something has happened, something's gone wrong, or if they're planning, we seem to be stuck in a temporal state. And everyone seems to be stuck in different temporal states. So some people are stuck in the past, some people are grounded in the present, and some people are living in the future. So if you're talking about change you need to make, you may see some people arguing for why you are in this position that you are in now. How did you come to be here? You may have one or two people or like a few people talking about and describing what the current state is. And then you may have a few people talking about what you should do about it. So how does temporal states present themselves in this meeting? And how does the team deal with it when they are stuck in temporal states? Each one of those perspectives is valid, and that might say something about what is their process. Do they think about, we're going to talk about what is currently happening, what led to it, what can we do, or are they just randomly talking? Okay, let's shift over to environment, which is where you start. Yeah, but like I said, I go back and forth. Yeah. I start with the context. So are they aware of how their work fits into the big picture? Can they articulate or how do they articulate what they're working on? Do they know who is going to receive this product they're working on and why it's important to them and how it's going to change their lives? Do they exhibit behavior that might make me think they're actually interested in working on this? One thing that I find interesting is related to that is feedback Like, how does the team make use of feedback about their mission or their context? So when they deliver something or when they get feedback on their roadmaps, how do they make use of that? And related to that, how do they get feedback from customers? When they talk, customers, stakeholders, and the team, do they use similar language with the same meaning or do they have different meanings? We're assuming that they actually have some contact with their customers. Yeah. That would be another important thing to observe. If they don't know who their customers are, and I occasionally run into teams who don't, they may be like scrumming perfectly, but they don't know who they're doing their work for. I think that's super common. Or have they ever met them? Do they have any sense of what their world is like? You talked about real team as well. I think that's a super interesting one to talk about. What do you mean that there are pseudo teams? Shock. Yeah. <laughs> I was doing a workshop a couple years ago, and this woman was talking about how difficult it was to coach the team she was working with. I asked a bunch of questions, and it turned out that while the box on the org chart stayed the same, the people who were assigned to that box changed on a weekly basis. Oh, no. Yeah. So it was being called a team, but it wasn't a real team. And in that particular situation, she didn't feel like she had any influence over creating a more stable team membership. So what they ended up doing was just slicing all the work to stuff that could be done in less than a day. By individuals, probably. 
yeah, by individuals because people were moving in and out all the time. So they had to put a lot of context around stuff and they had to make it really tiny. So yeah, there are things called teams out there that do not exhibit the characteristics of what someone in the social sciences would call a team. But even if you have what they would call a real team, things to pay attention to could be who knows who well and how does it affect collaboration when they know each other well and know each other less? What does work look like when two people want to collaborate and what does it look like when two people don't want to collaborate? Mm -hmm. A popular term nowadays is autonomy, autonomous teams, bounded autonomy, and everything with autonomy. And how, how could you pay attention to autonomy? I pay attention to whether team members feel like they can take action on their own without waiting to be told what to do or without asking for permission. I try to listen for teams indicating that they know something about what their boundaries are. Like they recognize we can make decisions about this thing, but this other thing we need to involve someone else because it's going to impact a larger group or cost more money or whatever. Yeah. Because autonomy is such a buzzword and lots of organizations want to provide their teams with greater autonomy, that's also one thing you can look at. How do teams react when they get increased mandate or decreased mandate? Like how do they react to that? Mm -hmm. And another thing I look at is do they have the information to act on that autonomy, right? Very often I hear well-intentioned people saying, hey, we want empowered autonomous teams, but then the teams don't understand how their work fits into the big picture. So, you know, they may be free to do stuff, but they don't have a good sense of what to do, how it fits in the big picture, what to do next. Yeah. And that makes me think about support. There's a lot you can observe when it comes to environmental support. Can you give a few examples of that? So one thing that comes up is, does the team have access to outside expertise? If they get stuck, do they have to struggle on alone forever? Or can they call on someone else in the organization who might be able to help them with something? Do they have the actual material they need to do the work? I've seen teams struggling with outdated technology, trying to accomplish something that literally is far more difficult because of the machines that they're trying to work on. I've seen teams trying to test brand new technologies where they have only one test environment and 40 teams trying to share time in that environment. So actually having the physical support and the machines, the equipment, the space to do their work is really important. Mm. One thing I find super interesting to look at is management. What do managers manage? Do they manage individuals? Do they manage the organization, i.e. the system? Mm-hmm. Do they manage the product backlog? Because that happens in some organizations. How does being a manager play out? Yeah. Is it day-to-day -day task supervision or is it actually creating an environment where the team can be more autonomous, going back to that term? So one aspect of management that you can also observe is how well are they supporting focus on the team? Is the team assigned to multiple projects at the same time? So they're context switching all the time. What's the work in process? You know, so how is work flowing into the team? You can also look at how often they context switch and who context switches more and what systems or backlogs or you know, mission do they context switch. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and where is this work that is driving context switch coming from? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we could go on with many, many more things to observe, but I think this is a good starting point that if you're a coach or a team lead or a manager, making some observations about these things could help you really target what changes would be helpful and useful to the team. So you're not just stumbling around dizzy, poking pins in the furniture. Because even if you have this list, it's still easy to be dizzy. Yeah. So if you do take inspiration from this list, I just want to reiterate what we've said. Just pick one of these areas. And even if it might seem very simple, oh, I'm just going to be bored in that meeting, pick one, stick to that one. Of course, be willing to shift, but don't pay attention to multiple of these different areas. You are going to miss very vital information if you pay attention to too much. Yeah, if you try to see everything, you'll see nothing. This brings us to our last point, which is about becoming aware of your interpretation model. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think it's really important to separate observation, which is what you see and hear, from how you interpret those observations. And as humans, our minds are wired to make sense of things, to apply meaning to things. And as someone observing, I think it's really important to the extent possible to suspend the judgments or put the brake on those judgments and step back and say explicitly, how am I going to make sense of these and use an explicit model? I mean, we alluded to a couple of those models when we were talking about where these things to observe came from. I explicitly use Hackman's work. I explicitly use Amy Edmondson's work when I'm interpreting and trying to make sense of stuff. So it's important to keep your interpretations at bay and your judgments at bay, and then use an explicit model to guide your interpretations. When I'm sharing my observations with a team, I just generally share my observations and let them make the meaning of them. Because if I come in with my interpretation and they don't agree with it, they're not likely to respond to it they'll blow it off and maybe blow me off. But if I share what I have observed and help them make sense of it, then they are much more likely to own the data and own whatever change they make as a result of that. In addition, you're also violating your agreement if you're handing over a conclusion. You're handing over a biased conclusion when you were there to observe. So you're not fulfilling your part of the agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for example, I observed a team once where there was what seemed to me to be a pattern of interruptions. But I did not say there's clearly a pattern of interruption here and there's a dominant subset and they interrupt everyone else. I said, I just made a tick mark every time there was an interruption. And then I said, the name of the person interrupted four times. This person interrupted five times. This person was interrupted six times. You know, it was just data. And they actually were not aware of how many interruptions were going on in the group or that there was something of a pattern. And they were quite, I think they were almost appalled with themselves because it wasn't done consciously to put anybody down, right? It was just sort of a habit they had fallen into. And based on the data, they chose to do some things differently. But it could also have gone another way. They might have just said, yes, we're quite aware of that. We've had conversations about it, and we're actually all kind of fine with it. We also have a timeout function where someone can say timeout. And so, yeah, we're fine with it. Yeah, that's possible too. 
But if you had said instead, you all interrupt each other and have poor collaboration, neither of these conversations would have been possible where they would have said, yes, oh, we need to do something about this. Or, yeah, we're kind of fine with that. Yeah, that's just the way we work. And then I would test to make sure that that was actually true for everyone in the group and wasn't just being said by a couple of people. <laughs> by the one with the most checks. Yeah, the one who interrupts the most. So we've covered a whole raft of things that you could potentially observe on a team. And as we said, this isn't everything you could observe. It's a starting point. These are things that we observe based on explicit models that relate to team dynamics and team formation and team support. You may find some other things that are worth observing. And we also have other things that we observe, but we didn't want to overwhelm everything and list every potential observation. So this is a starting point to begin your practice in observation. So to summarize our key takeaways from this episode, you need an agreement with a team about what you're going to do with the observations. Know and decide in advance what you're going to observe, but be willing to shift. Separate between observation and interpretation and transfer ownership of observations to the team. Because there was so much that we covered, like Esther said, we have created a mind map that we're going to upload to our Podbean site. So head on over there and download it if you haven't already. Thanks for listening to this episode. See you next time. 